Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal, and I am fairly bursting with excitement for today's show. We're going to be talking with Andrew Alden, the author of a new book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a City. But this book is more than a local history. It reminds me of what the novelist J.M. Ledgard called planetary writing, a brave attempt to show how the Earth machine, in the deepest of time, has created this specific place. And the rocks, their formations, their interactions with the ocean and the streams, they silently structured much of the human culture that was built atop of them, from Maloney management to this very second. As you listen to this broadcast from a tower placed atop a peak created by the whole planet's motion, we'll talk local geology after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Listen, I'm just going to say it. If you live in the Bay Area, you should be grateful to our guest this morning, Andrew Alden. His new book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a City, is an act of care, an act of love even for this place. Alden has spent his life hiking our hills, wandering our alluvial plains, peering into the foundation halls of downtown buildings, organizing a mountain of research. All this so he can tell us the story of where we all live. All this so we can know what Lake Merritt was, how the Hayward Fault intersects with our lives, how the world has been, how we found out, how we might live within it. Yes, I know, it's a book about Oakland and the East Bay broadly, but those are just the lines we've drawn over the top of the planet. As you'll hear, there's no downtown Oakland without San Francisco. Petaluma rocks have siblings and Sibley. From the Sierra to out past the Golden Gate, our region is literally connected by unimaginably big forces in time and space. But Alden's going to help us orient ourselves in this larger world. And when we return to our kid pickups and coffee meetups and sitting in traffic, we'll be a little larger, a little more connected, a little deeper even for this journey. So, Andrew Alden, thank you for this work as writing and as research. It's really just so beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Alexis. It's um, th- the, the reception I've gotten for this has been real gratifying. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a life work really compressed into this little precious gem here. <laughs> yeah. 
So we're going to start off with a reading here from the preface to the book that really describes your relationship to the city of Oakland. Yeah, thanks for picking it. It goes like this. My experience of Oakland, my city for over 30 years, is one of growing intimacy with its unusual geological complexity. I've walked every block of its streets, inspected all of its stairways and trails, and done a fair amount of off-trail bushwhacking. Oakland is a mosaic of long-gone lands, lost worlds, some of which have traveled great distances over great stretches of time to spend time with us. Its parts have been gathered and sculpted by the aimless forces that operate the earth and stitched into a landscape rich with personality. Geologic Oakland is the core of my home and the navel of the world. Every geologist has what might be called a natal landscape, the kind of country they lived in as a child, the landscape they imprinted on. The Bay Area's hills and peaks are the first mountains I ever saw. As with my father before me, my natal landscape is the Bay Area, but also like him, I have deep family roots in the Northeast and spent important parts of my life there. Landscape was my childhood fascination, and it still is. I was raised on both the East and West Coasts, but not until my geology degree sank in did I see and understand their profound differences. The East Coast, in plate tectonic terms, is a passive continental margin. For over 100 million years, since the Atlantic Ocean opened up, it has stayed quiet long enough for erosion to do its work, keeping the coastal plains flat and the mountains fairly low. The West Coast is an active margin, where tectonic forces have cut and rearranged the Earth's crust in dramatic fashion, and where earthquakes remind us it's still on the move. Thus, this book begins with the Haver Fault and ends with the Oakland Hills, which owe their existence to it. Every California city has a view of mountains, but our hills are special, as the Ohlones, still living among us, have always known. With Andrew Alden reading from his new book, Deep Oakland. So we are starting with the Hayward Fault, and you really start this book kind of right by the Claremont Hotel, uh, where you can actually see traces of the, the Hayward Fault. And why did you start the book there in, with this particular fault line? This particular fault line, well, it's the only one there is in, in, in Oakland. It, it simply um, it defines the landscape. It, uh, it lowered the bay and it raised the hills, and it's moving along uh, day by day. It's um, between large earthquakes that offset the ground. It's the upper parts of the crust are creeping. They're moving a few millimeters a year, invisibly. And so uh, uh, while we think of the Hayward Fault as as an earthquake generator, it's it's something that's going to, it's going to upset our lives, you know, at some point. It's also just a fascinating thing. It's a a sleeping giant, uh, a river of energy under the landscape. 
and I love to, I, I admit it, I love to visit it. I love to just, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there's, there are several spots in Oakland where you can see the offset happening. And I come back, you know, every now and then and, and see how it's doing. You know, I, I won't exactly call it a friend, but it's something I'm, I'm familiar with. And I wanted uh, the people in Oakland to, to get to know that fault because it's, as I've said on, on my blog, it's a part of the family. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about creeping northwards, this is really like an action that you actually can see, even though it's really, you know, been occurring in deep time as well and on geological timescales. If someone wants to go see the Hayward Fault, I'm like air quoting here, how, how do they do that? What would you say would be the best spot they could pick? Well, the the one spot in Oakland that it's actually has an interpretive sign for it mm-hmm. is in Temescal Regional Park at Lake Temescal. It's uh, right by the Ranger Building and uh, the asphalt path. You can see the set of uh, sort of a snake-like set of cracks. Uh, each one is a few feet long, and it's separated by. It opens up by about an inch or so, mm-hmm. and uh, and there it is. Yeah, like in a lifespan, a, a bunch of millimeters will move, right? I mean, that's what it's, it's, it's actually seeable. It's moving now. There's actually a, a, a concrete lined chamber underneath it with a, a piece of apparatus called a creep meter. It's a, basically two steel piers set down on either side of the fault with a, a, a metal cable strung across between them. So as it moves, the cable stretches and uh, and its instruments record it. And uh, in the book, I link to a the website where you can check it out. Yeah, we're talking with geologist, writer, and geological tour guide Andrew Alden. I'm talking about his new book, Deep Oakland: How Geology Shaped a City. What questions do you have about Oakland's landscape and rocks out there or the Bay Area's more generally? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. What's something you've always wondered about our geology? The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the social things at KQED Forum. I wanted to talk a little bit about the interconnectedness of our region in deep time. And maybe the best way to do that is to talk about the thick layer of fine sand that underlies downtown Oakland. How did that sand on this interior side of the the bay, how did it get there? It got here over San Francisco. Um, It um, formed at the height of the latest ice age. Uh, this was about twenty thousand years ago at a time called the last, the, excuse me, the last glacial maximum, and geologists say that with capital letters. <laughs> we, we even call it the LGM. Um, at that time, uh, there was so much ice piled up on Antarctica, on the uh, on Greenland, on the North American continent, and on Eurasia that uh, the sea. Had was drawn down as much as 400 feet, 130 meters, which is as far down as Oakland's downtown buildings are tall. So if you know you look around and try and picture that, um, 
the, the bay itself was dry. It was not there. It was San Francisco Valley. Hmm. And uh, it, the Golden Gate was, uh, was empty except for a huge river, the San Joaquin-Sacramento River, uh, rushing down to the sea. I, I picture it as being brown. With, from the sediment. With sediment and, you know, sand and gravel and clay washing from the Sierra Nevada, where there were mountain glaciers uh, busy digging Yosemite Valley, Hetch Hetchy, and so on. Um, and the, the river strewed all that sand and sediment onto that seacoast. Um, the shoreline was out by the Farallons. 130 meters below today. And when you picture the wind, uh, the wind that we're so familiar with in San Francisco blowing the fog over, you, you, you multiply that a few times. And um, it carried sand um, all over the city, all over San Francisco, which is why Golden Gate Park had, was built on sand dunes. The whole mm -hmm. western edition, the, that whole west side of the city is sand dunes. You look at a geologic map of San Francisco, and there's a whole big, a big yellow field of sand dunes. And that same sand blew across the bay, leaving a thick deposit that um, Bay Area dredgers are quite familiar with. And it, it wound up uh, all the way over on the east side of the bay in downtown Oakland, and uh, it also formed the peninsula that the city of Alameda sits on, and uh, also a little bit down on Bay Farm Island, just north of the Oakland airport. And this is it's this, it's this fine sand. It's almost powder, and it has just, some clay mixed in with it. Just and the foundation of these cities. It, yeah. Such a... We're going to talk more about um, the foundation of the city and the kind of human, how humans ended up interacting with this landscape with Andrew Alden, author of the new book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped the City. We'll get to some calls and comments after the break as well. Call out is, you know, what questions do you have about Oakland or Bay Area landscape and how that was formed? The number is 866 6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with Andrew Alden right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Andrew Alden, author of a fantastic new book called Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a City. Before the break, we were just hearing about the sandscape of uh, of Oakland, which really underlies uh, downtown Oakland and geologists call Merritt Sand. One of the things I wanted to get at with this, Andrew, is that that sand, this plateau of sand that sits there in, you know, underlying a lot of West Oakland and downtown Oakland, it's why the city is where it is, right? That's right. It uh, It's distinctive. It's the only thing like it in the whole East Bay. So when the uh, the founders of Oakland were rowing around the bay looking for places to claim land and found cities, they they spotted this platform. Uh, it it sits above the water. You go down to Jack London Square today, and you can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, it's like ten twenty feet above the water. It's a, like a natural harbor, a natural landing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the rest of the East Bay is either uh, inhospitable rocks like Point Richmond, or just marsh, like. Uh, down, you know, it's, it's like it still is down in the South Bay in the old salt uh, mm-hmm. beds. And so they said that this is it. Um, and they proceeded to lay out uh, uh, claims to 160 acres apiece on land that didn't actually belong to them. It belonged to the Spanish ranchers. But uh, that, that that's a story of the Bay Area, how the invading Americans during the gold rush essentially uh, cheated the, the Mexican landowners out of their property just by tying them up in court. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, here's my fee. Well, I'll take a few thousand acres in payment. Mm-hmm. And that's how um, Horace Carpentier, Oakland's scoundrel founder and its first mayor, ended up a, a huge landowner. And uh, I was just researching the San Ramon Valley yesterday, and he did the same thing over there too. Huh. He he cheated rancher after rancher of uh, of their land, and and then he retired to New York, where he is he is loved because he uh, bequeathed a lot of money to good things. But around huh. Oakland, he was thoroughly a common strategy. Oh man, <laughs> they hated yeah. him so much. Every history of nineteenth century history of Oakland just rakes him over the coals. And so I do, too. (laughs) Um, Quick question on Oakland from listener Greg. Scientists just announced that New York City's sinking from the weight of all the concrete, steel, people. Is this effect happening in Oakland as well? Well, Oakland is nowhere near Manhattan in the degree that it's built up. And yeah, that, that was a fun little item of news that Manhattan... Um, the weight of all that building is depressing the Earth's crust. It's flexing it. Uh, it's kind of a miniature version of what happened during the Ice Age in the Northeast and across uh, the central U.S. because there was 10,000 feet of ice uh, on most of Canada, and the Earth's crust sagged. And then, then when the glaciers all melted, they finally finished melting about 12, 10,000 years ago. Ever since the Earth's crust has been rising, 
So, for instance, the, um, the Baltic Sea between Scandinavia and Europe has been shrinking measurably. The, the, the sea coast has been expanding out because the crust is rising. And that's just a cool thing. And so wow. I, when, I, when I heard about Manhattan, yeah, it, like it's only an inch or so. Yeah. And I assume San Francisco probably has some version of that, but instead of an inch, it's like a tenth of a millimeter. Well, even if it does, it's just noise in the data. You really couldn't tell it apart because around here, there's so much tectonic disturbance. Mm. Um, the, the, the kind of forces that are moving the crust around on the Hayward Fault and the San Andreas Fault and the San Gregorio Fault and the Calaveras Fault and so on. Um, let's bring in Drew in Berkeley. Welcome, Drew. First caller, welcome. Hi, thank you. Uh, wonderful conversation. Uh, my question is about the estuary. How did the relationship between Oakland and Alameda come about, the kind of natural origins, and then how it uh, evolved into future times? Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful, Drew. Um, great question. Also linked um, to really the development of Oakland, development of Lake Merritt. Um, Andrew Alden? Yeah. Um, you, you, you say, you know, we have this big sheet of sand coming over the, the East Bay, and so why, why is it in pieces? Why is there, you know, one piece in Oakland and one piece in Alameda? Well, the answer is that at the same time the sand was coming in, Every stream in the East Bay was flowing down to 400 feet below sea level. They were, you know, today we're used to the San Francisco Bay. It's it's sitting up where it is, and the streams all flow down to it, and they're depositing, you know, mud and gravel and sand and filling it up. That's That's the universal base level of every stream in the East Bay. But if you lower the ocean 400 feet, all of a sudden all those streams are going hey, let's get digging again. They start digging into that um, uh, th- that material they've laid down. And so all the East Bay streams have these secret canyons underneath them that were dug at the height of the Ice Age. Oh. And then when the sea crept back in, they kind of filled in again. They, they covered their tracks. And... Um, so while that was happening, all the, the streams that feed Lake Merritt were cutting it especially deep, and they cut that channel between Oakland and Alameda that has uh, served as the original shipping channel for the, the city back in the gold rush days, the, the, the shipping channel that made Oakland attractive in the first place. One of the things that um, did stun me about this book is, you know, when you are able to think in that deep time, you're able to think of Lake Merritt as not just a lake, but sort of all of its historical incarnations. And to even think about how often it would be a valley and not a not a lake. Are there other areas of the bay that you think would be kind of equally surprising what they've been in kind of deep geological time? Uh, well, you know, th- there's more around Lake Merritt, for instance. Um, and not only uh, have this evidence of how it was at the when there when it wasn't there at the height of the 
at the cold peak of the Ice Age. We also have traces of the warm peak of the last Ice Age. In fact, it was so warm at the time. This was 125,000 years ago. Um, the ice had melted even more than it has today. The sea was uh, six or eight meters higher, like 25 feet higher. And at that time, just like today, the streams were uh, sluicing sediment down from the hills and laying it out in, um, in a nice even layer right up to sea level. And then the, it, it, um, when the sea receded, that gravel terrace was left behind as a terrace of gravel and sand. And that's where Lakeside Park sits today. You, you go there and it's, it's flat, you know. And if you mm -hmm. go in parts of uh, East Oakland, down in the, uh, the, the, to the, towards the bay on side of International Boulevard, it's, it's also that same terrace. It's really, really flat. It's very striking. And yet it's a completely different terrace from the terrace of Oakland downtown. They're, they're like 10 feet different in elevation, and they're of totally different origin. It's so interesting. Um, you know, listener Michelle writes in, I'm so glad we got uh, a, a comment like this. Listener, uh, Michelle writes in, my quarter acre property on the top of a ridge in El Sobrante above Pinole is covered with material that seems to be sandstone. Far too prevalent to have been trucked in. It often contains evidence of tiny clams. How did this happen? Uh, that, that's fun to have rocks like that in your backyard. Oakland, unfortunately, is missing that particular set of rocks. You know, the, the one thing I uh, feel sad about in Oakland is that there are so few fossils in it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, her rocks... Well, it's just a, it's just an example of how complicated the rocks of the East Bay are because not only was the Hayward Fault, you know, moving one side north with respect to the other, but um, earlier faults in the same complex have been pulling packets of rock of different age and origin uh, like uh, shuffling a card deck and just <laughs> dealing them out all up and down the East Bay Hills. And that particular um, set of strata up in El Sobrante, if I'm not mistaken, is part of the Briones Formation, which is famous for being full of shells. And um, the, the, the Bay Area has looked quite different at different times. You know, a few million years ago, what was up was was down. What what is a hill today was a basin. It was uh, covered with water and accepting sediment from hills that are now underwater. So, yeah. it's it's complicated, and geologists are having the time of their lives, you know, <laughs> trying to sort it all out. Well, it is. You also have said, and I think it's it's still a theory thus far undisputed that Oakland has the widest array of rock types of any city in the country. It's, it's, a th it's my theory. It is my theory, which is mine. <laughs> um, I uh, sat, sat down. I was getting ready to give a talk to East Bay Nerd Night, uh, which, is, I'm sad to say, has 
ceased operations during the pandemic. I don't know when we're going to bring Nerd Night back. <laughs> but um, I was uh, counting up the different kinds of rocks we have that, that geologists have given names to. Sandstone, siltstone, shale, chert. These are all rock types that are well-defined. Um, and I, I counted more than two dozen all the way from eclogite and peridotite, which are real hard to find. These are rocks that form deep under the ocean in in the Earth's crust and mantle, mm -hmm. and as well as, you know, your everyday sandstone stuff. And I said, you know, I can't think of another city that has this much variety. And so I cast around in my mind. Of course, I've spent a lot of time in New York, uh, upstate and downstate in Manhattan, and they've got some cool stuff, but um, Oakland just outshines them. Uh, Los Angeles, you know, it, it sprawls all over a huge variety of geology, but I think Oakland beats them. Chicago, forget about it. Chicago is basically a limestone city. And Seattle, Seattle's, you know, anyway, I could not come up with a city that has more than Oakland, and no one has proven me wrong yet. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about the human interaction with these different geological and, and landscape features. And I thought maybe we could use um, Indian Gulch, what is now the Trestle Glen neighborhood, as kind of an example of the kind of transition from Ohlone land management and how it worked to what you call land slaughter that occurred as uh, Americans in particular came into the region and began to, you know, kind of turn this into to property and build it into sort of the property system. Yeah, the, the Ohlone's, it, it was called Indian Gulch because, and it has been ever since gold rush days, because uh, it was such a, a beautiful spot for a village, for a winter village for the Ohlone's. Um, it was right down by the water, down by the head of Lake Merritt. So if they wanted to go fishing, if they wanted to go hunting birds or gathering reeds or whatever, um, it was right there. And it had oak trees in case they needed a quick supply of acorns. It had um, a shelter from the weather. Um, and uh, it had a stream in it. They probably had a um, sweat house there. So it had everything a proper Ohlone village needs. Plus, it's just a real nice place. It has... Um, as I put it, has natural amphitheater-like settings mm -hmm. to do perform ceremonies, whether it's you know weddings and funerals or uh, visits from the neighboring tribes to to trade, and so it was just a great place. It was um, it, it was home. It was it was a home base, mm -hmm. and well. You know, the Spanish showed up in the 1770s, and then the um, the Padres showed up and rounded up all the tribes. And uh, as we all learn in fourth grade, 
in California and simply wiped them off the land. And so the reason, they, we, why do we still call it Indian Gulch? Well, when the ranchers who were granted that land, uh, they needed laborers, they used uh, California Indians from the mission. And those tribes people undoubtedly remembered everything about that countryside. And so I'm sure they let their... Um, the ranchers were effectively their owners. They let them know what this place meant to them. And so it was called Cañada de las Inditas, you know, the uh, Indian Gulch, basically, or, or the Glen of the Indians. And um, the the ranchers didn't make much of it. They, they harvested, they raked up acorns to feed the, the pigs. They uh, cut firewood and and in the from the oak trees, and so other than that, they kind of let it be. Then the Americans, you know, wiped out the Mexicans in their turn, and they said, you know, this is this is going to be great residential <laughs> land, uh, which is what what I refer to as land slaughter. You you take what was living countryside. Um, part of the Ohlone's world and just turn it into lines on a map for sale by the acre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've, we're talking with geologist and writer Andrew Alden about his new book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a City. We're going to take uh, some more of your calls right after this upcoming break. Nancy's got a real quick question for you, Andrew Alden. Um, she's in the middle of reading the book and says she's absolutely fascinated. Um, good depth, pardon the pun, without being overly academic. She plans to go around Oakland with the book in hand. Does anyone do geology field trips around Oakland for non-geologists? Um, well, I've done it. I don't think anybody else does. <laughs> okay. And would they, uh, they would go to your blog. You can just search Andrew Alden blog if they'd like to find. Yeah, go to deepoakland.com. Deepoakland.com. Or oaklandgeology.com. That's the blog. It, I've been running it since 2007. It's uh, like 550 posts and, and be sure and use that search engine on it. <laughs> Perfect. All right. We'll be back with more right after the break with Andrew Alden, author of the new book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a City. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal here with geologist and writer Andrew Alden talking about his new book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a City. Let's bring in some callers. Don in Mountain View. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I love this because I'm a geologist myself. And I wanted to say, you know, I moved to the Bay Area in 2019 for a job in geology. Mm -hmm. And... um, I was really struck by how, you know, earthquakes and faults are the the main geologic force that shapes the Bay Area. But then um, as a volcanologist, I've learned um, that volcanoes have actually done a really great job shaping the Bay Area in particular um, with the Sibley uh, Volcanic Regional Park in the Berkeley Hills. And those rocks and the volcanism related to that, the younger volcanism extends up into the North Bay um, all the way up to Clear Lake. So it's not just earthquakes. It's also volcanoes. And then <laughs> I love the volcanist who's like, by the way, we also were important here. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Um, for uh, San Francisco-based stuff, um, there is a, a series of field trips that a layperson can take um, with the, the book called A Streetcar to Subduction. Oh, looking right. at the geology of San Francisco that can, you can make links, obviously, um, with the East Bay. So I love this. I'm going to check out your book, Andrew, um, and I follow you on Twitter. So uh, <laughs> thank, thank you, Don. Thank Thanks. you, Don. And, and thank you for pointing out Clyde Warhoftig's great, great book, A Streetcar to Subduction. He really inspired me with what he did with San Francisco. He, it's a set of field trips around the city by public transit showing you rocks and faults, and uh, just kind of bringing the landscape to life. It's great. It is. Also, I mean, what a title. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Streetcar to Subduction. Um, let's talk a little bit about the volcanism that Don was mentioning. You know, one part of the book takes place um, in this uh, volcanic region, what was once a volcanic region. Um, obvious things. The volcano's not still active, right? Um, but when was it active? And where can we, like, if you're just a lay person wandering around, where do we see the effects of those volcanoes in the landscape? Um, the, um, the, the, the round top volcanic center was active um, 10 to 9 million years ago. That, that's typical for a small volcanic complex. They, they live about a million years, and then they kind of run out of magma, and, and it goes somewhere else. Um, and, um, so that, that was while the Hayward Fault was getting organized. It was organizing itself and extending up through the Bay Area from the south. Uh, when it does that, it kind of opens up the Earth's crust. And when you do that, it releases pressure on the mantle underneath. When you do that, that's as good as raising its temperature. It allows it to melt. Pressure inhibits melting. So when you open up the crust like that, um, 
it can form fresh magma. So we had uh, this a little volcanic center. It was a few miles across for about a million years, and then it 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 uh, shut down. Uh, but the place to see it up on Sibley Volcanic Preserve, it's it's all opened up by uh, rock quarries because it turns out that uh, basalt is very good rock for making crushed stone, hmm. um, and uh, but part of the part of Deep Oakland is about quarries mm-hmm. and wh- what sources of good rock meant to uh, the city of Oakland. And the same is true in San Francisco. Um, yeah. uh, uh, it was um, part of what made Oakland wealthy was having good rock right near the harbor. It was just an hour's wagon ride from the original downtown. And so the uh, people who owned the land up on those hills became entrepreneurs you know they they got money to invest in other things so oakland was in a, in a sense owes its um prominence to its geology to its to its geological resources including the you know the volcanic rock high up on the hills the place to go see and appreciate it uh as dawn said is up in simply preserve where there's lots of interpretive signs uh, along Grizzly Peak Boulevard, where the uh, road cuts are all full of volcanic ash beds, and of course in North Berkeley's rock parks, just also volcanic rock. So I want to do a quick round robin because we have a bunch of comments coming in about asking you different questions. So we'll kind of do these do these real quick. This Sarah, is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sarah writes in to say, my 10-year-old son, Sammy, has a question. Thank you, Sammy. Can you find gemstones in the Bay Area? And if yes, where should you look for them? Yeah. Um, the, um, there are lots of agate deposits. Agate is a semi-precious gem. You use it, you'll see it in uh, decor. You can tumble up. it, right? And yeah, then it yeah. You make it like belt buckles and clunky jewelry, that kind of thing. Um, as far as you know, crystal gemstones. No, the Bay Area is not much for that that I can think of offhand. Certainly not Oakland. Um, okay, now here's the next one. Lisa writes in to say, is it true that Albany Hill is granite and was once an island? Where did the granite come from? Um, it is not true that Albany Hill is granite. Albany Hill is sandstone. Uh, it's actually the same kind of sandstone that Piedmont is uh, sits on. That weird little city of Piedmont, which is entirely inside the boundaries of Oakland. Um, it's also the same kind of rock that the um, Potrero Hills on the west side of Richmond are on. That, that, that sandstone forms a belt that extends across the bay into San Rafael and Novato. So um, it was, it's not granted, it's sandstone. It formed as part of the Franciscan complex. 
And the Franciscan complex is, uh, it formed in the subduction zone that California used to be until about 25 million years ago. If you picture a subduction zone, if you picture a, like a bulldozer pushing across a piece of property, a subduction zone is, uh, you know, I, I should probably skip all that. I'll, I'll, I'll just say that's the story. It's in, it's yeah. in the book. It's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. It, the Franciscan complex is like a, 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 a lithological scrapple. It's just a mixture of all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Um, we are going to get to caller George in San Jose who wants to ask you about the California State Rock of course, Serpentine. Welcome, George. Uh, hello, uh, Andrew and Alexis. Uh, my favorite rock in the Bay Area is called Serpentine, and it's, it's beautiful. It's wine-colored to green to nearly black, and it has an unusual shape. It's, it looks like it's kind of been melted. And so I'm wondering, what is it made of, and why is it so prevalent in the Bay Area? Mm. George, yeah. oh, before you answer, Andrew, George, uh, totally agree. Also my favorite rock. Um and follow-up question, maybe you can answer this together. Jim wrote in to say, can you talk about East Bay Serpentine Rock Outcrops, a geology that supports rare California wildflowers? So you could maybe take the biotic in there, too. Yeah, so serpent, serpentine, the geologist called serpentinite, is a California state rock. Um, it's, uh, it's wonderful stuff. It's kind of green, gray-green, greasy-looking rock. It looks like something you've rubbed between your hands. And in fact, it's true. That's, that's kind of how it formed. It formed from deep sea uh, mantle rocks, rocks from beneath the crust that were exposed to hot seawater, seawater at you know, hundreds of degrees, which altered the minerals from olivine and pyroxene into serpentine minerals. So, you know, serpentine geologists differentiate serpentine minerals from serpentine rock. So we, call, we talk about serpentinite. But it is uh, being, it, it, it turns into this soft uh, kind of lubricating kind of rock. So it, it, it occurs along faults. It's very common along the Hayward Fault. It's common. It, it pooches out here and there along the San Andreas and, and elsewhere, and especially up in the Mother Lode in the Sierra, which is also uh, arranged along a fault. And it's associated with gold deposits. It was uh, attractive to the prospectors. And uh, the... Um, East Bay has a big chunk of it. I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. O Oakland is, uh, um, has, has a chunk of seafloor crust that's called the Coast Range Ophiolite, which is a, a, a band of rocks that extends all the way up the, central, the west side of the Central Valley and all the way down the length of the Coast Range, um, down near Point Conception. And we have a good piece of it up in the Oakland Hills in Redwood Park where it's uh, preserved as the Serpentine Prairie. 
And uh, serpentine is also special because it doesn't have a lot of calcium in it. It doesn't have a lot of nutrients that ordinary plants rely on. And it also tends to have a heavy dose of heavy metals like cobalt and uh, iron and so on. So it, it forms these kind of hostile soils that uh, have been colonized and by um, hundreds of specialized plant species from digger pines all the way down to grasses and uh, flowering plants. So if you go up there, it's a totally exotic-looking place if you know plants. If you get down on your knees and study it close up, it's just a really cool place. And the rocks are well exposed there, too. They're kind of a blue-jean color mm -hmm. uh, with uh, lumps of unaltered stuff, and it's all sheared. It's, it's beautiful. You just want to take pictures of it. I love it. Um, one last uh, quick question before we talk about some of the deep future of the bay. Paul writes in to say, what can you tell us about the tilted and folded sedimentary layers which are exposed about halfway up Claremont Canyon between the hotel and Grizzly Peak Drive? Paul, that's one of my favorite places, the exact rock outcropping you're talking about in the entire world. Yeah, that is um, our own uh, ribbon shirt. It's called Ribbon Shirt because it, it, it's um, arranged in thin layers, just a few inches thick. And um, so they look like ribbons when they're exposed. It is um, um, it's a cousin to the Monterey Formation, which is this huge body of shirt that extends the, the length of the San Joaquin Valley. It is uh, actually the major source of petroleum for, for, for California's oil fields because of the way it formed. Um, that exposure on Claremont Road is actually the type locality for the Claremont Chert. Um, and it's also exposed along Skyline Boulevard. It's just a really cool yeah. thing. In the book, I liken it to a forest of golden bamboo because it's just, yeah. it's warped and twisted and folded, all these layers. It feels like an old book to me. That's how I hmm. thought of it, you know, with these yeah. kind of pages uh, formed by the different ribbons of the church. It's so, mm -hmm. so beautiful. Um, before we close... We've been talking about a lot of the beautiful things about our geology here. We've been talking about the, the formation of it in, in deep time. You know, we had several people write in, uh, James, for example, who says, given the large population of people and all the buildings and infrastructure built along the Hayward Fault, what damage does he think will occur if the largest earthquake that the fault is capable of producing happens? We know this is going to happen. Last one was in 1868. What? How do you see the longer-term future of the Hayward Fault and people's interaction with it? Well, it's um, it's kind of unfortunate that the Oakland spread itself across the Hayward Fault before anyone knew what it meant. Um, it was recognized as a fault around the same time 
as the 1906 earthquake, which naturally um, sparked a um, large scientific study by by the geologists in the Bay Area who uh, mapped the San Andreas Fault, and they realized that there was a similar thing in the East Bay. And it was called the Hayward Fault at the time, but no one really understood how it worked until much later. And, of course, um, when science learns something, it doesn't mean that everybody else immediately hops to and recognizes what it means. You know, law, lawmakers and business people and the rest of us are kind of reluctant to admit that something will, something is threatening to their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And that's just, just the way of the world. But um, so, yeah, we have all this uh, infrastructure crossing the fall. We have highways crossing it and uh, water lines and power lines and... Uh, uh, the, the, the Caldecott Tunnel crosses it. So you know, we, we know now that the largest foreseeable earthquake on the Hayward Fault, the largest event that the friction on the rocks can support, is about a magnitude 7 earthquake, which would involve land movement of about a couple meters. Mm. And um, we have been working hard over the last 30 years or so on on the infrastructure, like the uh, East Bay Mutt's water line has been reinforced um, up and down the bay. It is now ready to survive a two-meter offset. Uh, the Caldecott Tunnel has been reinforced. The... Uh, Freeway overcrossings and so on have all been strengthened. Um, but the regular stuff. Yeah, is... the, the streets, the surface streets, the buildings, they're just sitting there waiting. Yeah. And when, it, when they're destroyed, when they're destroyed beyond repair, state law requires that, they, that the land be left empty. Yeah. You know, it, it will be condemned by nature. And so... Uh, after the next big Hayward Fault earthquake, which could happen at any moment, because the energy yeah. is there. The energy is there. We have no idea uh, on what schedule it will happen. But it will happen. Yeah, yeah it, it's just going to. It's well, just, that it's is not stop. geology, both this second as well as deep history. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Andrew Alden, his new book is Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a city. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Leslie McClurg. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.